opportunity to thank Ed Pitts and Howard Sandifer for their videography. Uh, we're going to be uh, rebroadcasting this on WCPT as well as Black Muse, which is a podcast. So I want to thank everybody for being here today. I see so many faces that I know. Hey, y'all. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah. I like this, it's like a little family reunion. You know, we can slip into our home language and how we talk to one another and then we'll get a little formal and kind of go in and out of things. This is an important conversation. It's very timely and it's personal. And I want to tell you first why it's personal to me because when I think about rights of any kind being taken away or granted, I'm a black woman, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> And what goes along with being a black woman is that every single day you walk around the world in your skin wondering if your freedom can be taken away when the sun goes down. That's real talk, y'all. How many in this room have ever woken up in the morning feeling like that? I didn't think so. And that's why you'll hear some words today that are really important, like allies. How many people here feel like they're an ally? Yeah? Yeah, supporter. You want to be there. And it takes a certain kind of an ally to be effective, though. A lot of people use that word real loosely. So just talking about black women for a moment, how many in here have a black female friend? Yeah? How many people here have a black female friend that you speak to every day? Don't lie. <laughs> How many people in here have a black female friend who comes to your house at least three days a week? Y'all said, I don't even have a white friend that comes to my house. I don't even have a family member that comes to my house three days a week. So that's good, though. But you get the point, right? It's one thing to say we know somebody and that we're familiar with somebody. But if you're not really friends and you don't really know the ins and outs that that person is going through every day, then it's a little hard to be a real effective ally. Because you can't be an ally from a distance. And when I think about how Roe versus Wade was overturned, and I think about how separate but equal, separate but equal could come back for some people, I'm scared. So we're going to get into our conversation here. Because whenever I have an opportunity to display a little black girl magic, <laughs> I'm all in. Folks know that about me. Now, Natalie Moore, I am such a big fan of yours. I think the last time we were together, I was at your last book launch. Uh, it was held downtown, I think, and I brought a posse of my folks from the office that day. But um, we've got a lot to talk about in this new book that you have. And one of the questions that I have to ask you, of all the rights that we have today as women, why have reproductive rights become so urgent? It's a very good question. Well, first, thank you, Doris. Thank you to the library, and hello to Barbara, who's on Zoom. <laughs> I'm honored to be here. And I just want to say, I mean, you all know this, but libraries are so important. And I frequent libraries. I'm not one of those people who say, oh, I have memories as a child. Um, I heard that librarians hate when people talk about the past and, and they're like, well, do you go to the library now? Right. Um, and especially the moment that we're in now, librarians are radical. Mm -hmm. And on the drive here, my six-year-old who's in the front and maybe a wee bit restless, I decided to have a TED talk about banned books. And she said, well, I don't understand. If you don't want to read it, 
then don't read it. You don't have to ban it. From the mouth of babes. And then she said, well, why don't they put the banned books for kids in the adult section? <laughs> I said, well, they would probably find out and, and still try to, to ban them. Uh, so this type of engagement is you know, bigger than me being here today. And I just really appreciate libraries and all they do in protecting democracy. So out of all the rights, um, well, I can really go deep on this um, because I'm continuing to be educated around abortion. So when we, back in the spring, when the, the leak came out, so I was not, I started writing this in 2018. I did not think Roe was going to be overturned because um, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett was not on the court yet. Brett Kavanaugh had just gotten on the court. When the billboard's dates were decided in January, it was a month after the Supreme Court took up Dobbs v. Jackson. And I told the folks at 16th Street Theater, abortion is going to be banned when this play is out. And I don't think most people believe me, not because they think that I don't tell the truth, but if you're not really engaged, it sounds so far-fetched because we don't see rights taken away, generally, by right, the court. the Supreme Court is usually right, giving right. us rights. So, as you know in your own lives, the discourse changed overnight about abortion. And so, we also knew that this would be decided late in the term because the Supreme Court tends to do its most controversial decisions later. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about what kinds of stories can we have in the hopper for when Roe drops. And what I thought about is how did Illinois get to be where it is today? And I borrow from a lot of work that was already done. There's a wonderful book called um, When Abortion Was a Crime by Leslie Regan. She is a law professor at U of I. And she spends a lot of time talking about Illinois. And one of the things that Alito said in his opinion was that abortion was made illegal by states and that should be part of the basis. Now, these were like in 1827, <laughs> before slavery. And I'm like, this is really what you beat that state? <laughs> in the 18, where, eight, where rights were, like what rights were there yeah, to begin for with. most people in this country? But if we're talking about women, mm -hmm. um, so that was shocking that, that he said that. Um, and just to give you just a kind of a, a, a very brief overview, um, abortion was not always a word. It was, you know, called quickening. And it wasn't, so you don't terminate after you feel the kicking. Mm -hmm. So also learning in the 1800s that there was fear by white men that white Anglo-Saxon women were not having enough babies. Mm -hmm. In the 1800s, they thought too many enslaved women were indigenous and East, um, European immigrants who had not graduated to whiteness in this, in this country yet. So, you know, we hear this now that this is really about, you know, controlling and replacement theory and all those things, but to read that this goes back mm -hmm. that far was really surprising to me. Yeah, whoever thought that this would be about population control yeah. for white women when we hear that's a fear of black women today. Right. And then learning about the American Medical Association really hasn't done any reckoning around its role in abortion, which as we know is based in Chicago. So midwives were doing abortion and there were some doctors who were very upset about these women doing something in medicine and they launched a campaign to be against abortion. So that was surprising mm -hmm. as well. So. Um, I can go on and on about different examples, but thinking to your question, wanting to take these rights away goes back, but 
it is important to, to know that, and I said abortion wasn't a word, but this type of procedure was happening in indigenous cultures, African, European, and it wasn't seen as a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly it is when you think about was. population control, racial fears, mm -hmm. and then the, the fear of women encroaching on your, you know, because they, they couldn't be doctors, mm -hmm. and um, at, attacking midwives in the process, and the AMA was behind that as an, as an institution based on who its leaders were. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, when I think about this, I always do research on the person that I'm going to be interviewing and the topic. And one of the things that I was surprised to learn, Natalie, was that two-thirds of families started by teens are poor. I mean, that's just a fact in this country right now. And nearly one in four will depend on welfare within three years of a child's birth. Many children will never, ever, ever be able to escape the cycle of poverty. And only about two-thirds of children born to teen mothers earn a high school diploma compared to 81% of their peers with older parents. And why that becomes important is obviously because these are the impacts of this overturning of Roe versus Wade. These women are going to be impacted tremendously. There's nowhere for them to go. On the way here, in fact, I was reading a report about a 10-year-old that was raped, and it's the doctor who's at the center of this whole controversy, who is now, she's getting death threats every day. She's been charged by, I forget the state who's taking her to court for performing this procedure. It's a non-surgical procedure that she performed on the 10-year-old who was violently raped. And while abortion is routine, as a productive health right for many of Americans, it is not the same for those who have unwanted pregnancies and have difficulties with pregnancies, and of course those that are dealing with issues like incest and rape. Now, Natalie, why more? In 2011, I believe it was, you covered a story on billboards that were coming to black communities across America. I don't remember if it had happened in Chicago at that time, you can let us know. But I was fascinated by this timeline. I, there were moments where I said, okay, is Natalie Moore a prophet? Because <laughs> I know she's done a lot of things, but you know, really, 2011 is quite a while ago you covered this. When I think about when Roe versus Wade was overturned back in June, and I start going back, your play opened six days later, I think, or well, your no, book was, it was published? Um, Haymarket published this as a book in March, and our, I think Roe came Anybody the, know the, the date? The, the decision was June 24th. Mm -hmm. I know because I was in Mexico. <laughs> um, the previews for the billboard were starting the 23rd, but then the lead got COVID. Uh -huh. So then we pushed it to the 25th, uh -huh. and then the understudy got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so the play was then pushed back mm -hmm. a week, so two cancellations. But technically, the play would have opened the day before the Dobbs decision. Wow. Now, you, I mean, the timing couldn't have been any more perfect. But tell us when this idea came to you to write this play about abortion. I mean, this just seems so prophetic to me. And it's not. It is simply <laughs> a coincidence. Um, I, I will say that I have always thought abortion is timely. And we've seen another book, if this is of interest to you, I highly recommend The Family Row, spelled R-O-E by Joshua Prager. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer this year. And it is a deep dive into the woman behind Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, and the pro-life and pro-choice movements. And another fascinating element that many of you may already know is that abortion was not, I just gave a, you know, a little brief history about who was against it, but abortion rights was bipartisan. You had 
Democrats who might have been anti-abortion, but lots of Republicans who were for abortion. So it wasn't a political issue. And Joshua Prager's book gets into when that politicization changed. And it was uh, around <clears throat> the Reagan years, uh, the, be the beginning of, of that. So that's, I think, really noteworthy um, because a lot of people didn't think Roe would be overturned because they thought cynically, and I was one of those people, that it was a recruitment tool. So if they overturn it, then what do they have? Well, just more <laughs> things that can be taken away because you know, reading this uh, decision, it's really opening the door mm -hmm. to a lot of things except banning interracial marriage because mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas thinks that that one is okay. It's all <laughs> right. the other things that, that are not. Whose so. wife wanted to overturn yes, the yes. election. So he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna protect Jenny at all costs. Um, so that's just a little bit of the, the framework there. And, and, and by the way, many of those Republican women who voted for, who wanted and supported it are regretting it now because they don't realize, a lot of them, I'm understanding, are feeling like that's not quite what we meant. We didn't I don't know, it. I'm too cynical for someone like Susan Collins to be like, Brett well, Kavanaugh yeah. lied to me. Like I everybody said that, that. like. <laughs> She's so convenient. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if I, if I buy these things because yeah. the, the handwriting was, was on the wall. So like you said, there was, mm -hmm. there's been this movement, um, a black conservative funded by white, white evangelicals putting up anti-abortion billboards that are specific, that are targeting black communities. Mm -hmm. And to do the, I mean, they're even in New York and like this isn't the breeding ground to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't think strategically to, to place them because it hasn't got, gained much traction. But what happened in 2018 was the same guy who did Chicago did Dallas. And the language around these billboards are things like the most dangerous place for a black child is his mother's womb, uh, abortion is genocide. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a black women's health group in Dallas called the Afia Center and they decided to clap back mm -hmm. and strong. They put up a, a billboard that said, along the lines, black women have the right to make decisions for their family, abortion is self-care, Hashtag trust black women. That's where that hashtag came from. And the billboard had three women smiling on the billboard. When I saw the billboard, I was taken aback. I did not go to Twitter or Facebook to <laughs> you know, discuss my feelings, but I had never seen abortion described as self-care. And I am a child of the 90s, and so I grew up with keep abortion safe, legal, and rare, which has its own form of stigmatization. And I was, I had another idea for a play, but I didn't, and I had already established a relationship with 16th Street Theater and Ann Filmer, who I'm sure some of you know, and I decided not to embarrass myself, so I took a class at Chicago Dramatist. And if anyone here is a play lover, think about the last play that you saw. Something or someone shows up. It's not like a novel where it's meandering and it's you know topical, I mean, of course it has a plot, but there's an urgency just like it is with news. So something is showing up. Mm -hmm. And this homework assignment was right about something that shows up. And this billboard had just happened. And I was feeling a certain kind of way, like why is this billboard bothering me? Like why do I feel kind of offended by it? Which I, I feel really silly saying that now, but 2018, <laughs> a lifetime ago. And so I called a friend of mine who's a midwife and an abortion provider in Memphis and as we know Tennessee has banned abortions and this is the clinic that is opening a clinic in Carbondale and they're going to be running putting people on trains because it's a three-hour ride and I said you know can you help me sort this out and she was like it's fine a lot of people feel this way but and, and even in the black reproductive justice community there was a debate is this going to we feel this way but is it going too far is the audience not ready but you know, self-care is not, and this is teased out in the play, it's not wine and, self and, and bubble baths, it's not the capitalistic way. It is therapy. You know, do you have food on your table? Like all all these, these bigger things. So I was like, okay, I get it. And then I, 
wrote a four-page scene, and it got really great feedback in the class. I sent it to artistic director Ann Filmer. She read it and said, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I think this is your playing instead. <laughs> so I thought I should listen to her. And then I just started reading and trying, you know, doing research and understanding. And the great thing is that the women from the FIA Center came up from Dallas to see the play and we did oh, a talk wonderful. back. And they were like, how did you, like, were you listening in on conversations? How did you <laughs> capture this? Because it's set in Chicago, it's set in Inglewood, it's set in a city council race. I was inspired by Dallas, mm -hmm. but it's not a reenactment. But overall, what I was trying to do is also show that black men are, are affected by patriarchy just like white men are. Mm -hmm. And so this one character is thinking black women need to continue to have babies to uplift the race, where you have white men saying the same thing, you know, for different reasons, but, you know, they, they mirror each other. And so I wanted to have an intraracial discussion about patriarchy, about black feminism, you know, set it in storytelling, not, um, right, you know, right. I, didn't, I didn't want the play to be didactic, but those were, the, and then, you know, it's, in many ways the play is about abortion, but it's not like no one's having an abortion in the play. Well, that's what, you know, and let's, let's stay with that line, that train of thought. Tell us, what is your message in the play? I mean, there are many themes in the play, but what is your specific message to other black women, to other women in general? Um, yet what's the message that you want us to get? I would say the message is who gets to speak for community? Mm. Mm. Because the person who puts up the billboard is running for city council and he's black and he's from Inglewood. And there's a fictitious clinic in Inglewood, the Black Women's Health Initiative, um, run and founded by a woman who was from Inglewood as well. Mm -hmm. and. They know each other, they're from the neighborhood, and there's some resentment that he has toward her for, you know, you don't know what the people want, you know, you didn't go to school in this community, you know, you left, and just because you have this medical degree doesn't mean you get to, to speak. And for him being a gadfly and never getting anywhere, this billboard gives him the attention that he has never had. And, People have said, well, why Inglewood? I could why have said Englewood it anywhere. Why the casting as you did with so many powerful black female leaders? I wanted it to be in a space that was contested, that has disinvestment. And so while this candidate is trying to link, link population laws in Inglewood to abortion, mm -hmm. which is a terrible, unstatistical <laughs> theory, he's also tapping into something about like we need something different. Look at this, it it's, looks the same after 40 years. Well, what's happening? We need new leadership. And in some ways, I don't even know how he feels about abortion. Like he's not, he's coming at this from a, um, you know, a fake black nationalist. He could be a closet Herschel Walker. <laughs> hmm. He's not that big of a jive turkey. <laughs> he's, um, yeah, I, the women from Dallas said that the most hateful messages they got were from black men. Mm. Mm -hmm. And she had to get, she had to move mm -hmm. when that billboard came up and she still had security. And I wouldn't say just because of, of black men, but yeah. it's, it's this, sister, you know, you're not down for the, like, because black women, the, the black feminism, one of the elements that is teased is that you are against the race if you're critical of certain elements mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. you know, how black progress is, mm -hmm. is measured. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're killing our babies. How could, how could you do that? And, and that whole, you know, history of many women here know the history of Planned Parenthood and the woman who founded Planned Parenthood, uh, Sanger. Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger. And she was somebody who believed in population control and wanted to uh, control the uh, number of births by black women. And so today, that, that myth is still being spread that that is what Planned Parenthood is today, which indeed it is not. Um, in fact, I recall, people don't even remember this, Bishop Arthur Ambrasier 
who was the pastor, the founding pastor of the Apostolic Church of God for over 20 years, my pastor, when his wife worked at Planned Parenthood forever. And people just don't realize how many churches are involved and support Planned Parenthood because it is not what Margaret Sanger formed the organization to be, thank God. And Margaret Sanger had, a, it, it's a lot more complicated than mm -hmm. the, oh, she didn't yeah. want black people you know, having babies. She had a relationship with Du Bois. Mm -hmm. uh, Planned Parenthood honored Martin Luther King in 1966 and Coretta Scott King. Uh, you know, spoke at that ceremony on, on his behalf. They both believed in, in family planning. But I also understand a little bit of why, I mean, black people have a little bit of conspiracy theory mm -hmm. in them yes. because of things that have happened to us in this country, including medically. Yes. But you just have to arm people with information. And, um, but, you know, like I said, the city council candidate is tapping into something because there's this fear of, well, this, you know, Inglewood's not going to be for us. The white people are going to come and what's mm -hmm. going to happen to us. Yeah, so the play is set in Inglewood. Uh, we see uh, black women leading. We all know black women have been leading since the beginning of time. Uh, that seems to be something some people have a difficult time understanding or accepting. I love these themes that you've brought out in your play. I see themes of um, uh, personal and collective power. I see um, themes of patriarchy and politics. What I'd like to do is to talk a little bit about allies. So one of the things that I've, I'm trying to do here is we're gonna follow the course of the play, but we're paralleling it with obviously what we're all faced with right now, and that's this issue of abortion and everything that's tied to it, um, from politics to our policies to just how we all relate and support one another as well. So let's take a look at how you've got some of these women interrelating with each other. I think about allies. You know, I, I, I ask these questions in the beginning, and there's a lot at play when people talk about being allies. Two of your characters, Tanya and Dawn, these are two black leaders with common issues, but they have opposing strategies. You have Tanya and Kayla, a mentor and a mentee. Um, the youth is teaching the elder about how to use technology tools. How much of what you know about protesting and um, strategizing came into play when you were doing character development for your play? Well, one friend of mine said to me, this play, you can tell, was written by someone who's attended a lot of community meetings. <laughs> um, all of my books are rooted in journalism and things that I have experienced. Um, so yes, that, that is a, you know, nobody is based on a character, but you know, writing a play and writing audio scripts are similar, and that's why this was a, uh, a good transition for me in terms of genre because you're writing for the ear. And so I'm thinking about how people talk. Um, even with the young woman, Kayla, you know, who's 19, a program assistant there, you know, I would ask my stepdaughter's questions like, what's a piece of technology that you've heard about in the past that you have no idea that that's about? She's like, a beeper. So like, that's a line that's, that's in there. Um, so I, I tried to take, you know, you write these massive, profiles mm -hmm. of your characters and these things don't even get into the play but it's so you know them and when I was writing I did tweet uh, I'm so Chicago that I'm spending so much time thinking about every single high school these characters went to went to even though it's never said in the play but that's Chicago I it's mean, so when you meet Chicago somebody, the first thing you want to know is what high school did you yes. get to but I want to tell you something Natalie it shows and I don't know how many of you feel this way I know in Oak Park when we do a talk like this 90% of the people in the room have read the book so I know they know what I mean when I say this I even though you say a lot of what you wrote in your profile doesn't make it into the book you see it that is I true see the development in these characters when I look at each one of these characters I, I feel them. I get a sense of them. So I appreciate the work you did on that. Really. Thank you. And I wanted to keep, like, Demetrius, the, the candidate, 
I mean, he gets on my nerves so bad, but I, Mine too. You know, even the director, you know, she was careful not to play him up for laughs too much to make it buffoonery. And I wanted some, like he's, he's insightful on certain things about the neighborhood. And I wanted to, I didn't want, you, you don't want one dimensional characters. I think right. that's the, the best way to, to say it. And you don't have to like the characters, but you don't want, it's too simplistic to be villain, evil, and then this other person, and Tanya, who's the founder, you know, she gets seduced by the attention, and she's so, we gotta change the narrative, we gotta change the narrative, to the point of, are you jeopardizing the work that you're doing? Are you too distracted? And at what point is changing the narrative more important than the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about that you cast the play with, uh, in a black scene, in a black neighborhood. When we think about this issue today, because we know it can never be won without the collaboration of black and white women together. How, in your research, have you found do black women and white women differ in what they think about abortion uh, itself? That's a really good question because even some of my friends' parents were like, Ugh, abortion, that's a white girl issue. And we're like, what? Like, that's how you see it? Um, so reproductive justice, and we're speaking about Illinois history, mm -hmm. And there is a Q and so the the play as a book has extra content that's mm -hmm. that's in there, and one of them is a Q and A with Tony Bond, whose archives are at the um, Vivian Harsh Collection at Carter G. Woodson Library. In 1994, Tony Bond was the first Black woman to head the Chicago Abortion Fund, and there was a pro-choice conference in Illinois that brought people from all over, and. The black woman, the, the Clinton health care bill was being debated. Like it was, um, I don't know if it was up for a vote yet, but it was, it was during this, this time. And a group of black women felt like there was too much emphasis on abortion. Mm -hmm. And so reproductive justice was born out of that conference. So reproductive rights is the legal framework. Reproductive justice is the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, mm -hmm. the right to parent with the supports that you need, violence-free, and the right to sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. So for reproductive justice advocates, they will say that Roe was the floor and justice was the ceiling. Some of the talk that we have all that we have heard going back to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare is abortion is a choice between a woman and her doctor. Um, the Roe decision was based on privacy and not autonomy. So if you don't have health care, you know, Medicaid doesn't you can't have an abortion on Medicaid. That's a federal law. Illinois reversed that law. Um, actually under Bruce Rahner. But that um, law came from, it was named after Henry Hyde. So C Colleen Connell of the ACLU used to run the Reproductive Rights Center and she would talk about all these, she's like a lot of these laws were workshopped in Illinois. Illinois, abortion was in the criminal code here and all of that changed um, in 2019 under the Reproductive Health Act. But just to go back to uh, you know, what reproductive justice means is you know, do you, can you afford an abortion? Do you have to take off work? Do you have housing? That abortion is just one spoke in this wheel of lots of issues around healthcare and access. So there's choice and then there's, I think the simplest way to think about it is choice versus access. And so for these activists, it's about access and not about this individual choice. And we do live in a society that tends to privilege individuality over community. I'd like to add to that. Um, uh, you know, I stopped attending my Catholic church uh, right here in Oak Park. And one of the reasons that I stopped attending the church service and continued to attend what we call extending the word, 
which in my view gave me far more spiritual food than the sermon I was hearing every Sunday and a lot of the other things. I was also a member of the social justice um, committee and I stopped attending that as well and one of the reasons is because every time I brought up um, a project or an issue that dealt with black people they never wanted to do it and but if I brought it up to do or any of them brought it up with Latino women or Latino issues they were ready and willing mm -hmm. to do it now that's my personal experience and so I decided that I can no longer attend this church and it is one of the number one churches um, in this in this town um, Everyone's and, like, hmm, yeah. what church is that? I can hear. <laughs> and and, and my, my, my feeling of looking around the room in the eyes of the faces of these women who say they're allies for black women, but yet were never willing to take on an issue about black women and for black women or black children is something that is unforgivable to me. So when I think about how uh, black women and white women or um, I think my understanding of when I say white women, it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's the Catholic women. Uh, because I view, as a Catholic, the Catholic's view of abortion as, you should stop saying pro-life. It's really pro-birth. And the reason is because you can't say you want to give everybody the right to have a child or give every child a right to be born and then vote against every policy that gives that child the resources to survive and thrive. Well, I, I, I want to hit on two things sure. that, that you say to mm -hmm. that. So again, going back to the Alito mm -hmm. decision, one thing he wrote was, oh, well, there's no stigma to being a single mom. Oh, you can't be discriminated against if you're pregnant. All these things, so you don't need to have abortion. And I was like, oh, he sounds like a reproductive justice advocate because he's saying that there's support systems that are in place. And so maybe those support systems should be <laughs> enshrined. But he wrote that these things exist. So, and even to your point about poverty, earlier mm -hmm. and all these things like there's no that that's where the disconnect is, it is just mm -hmm. have these babies but you know do you believe in universal child care like there's a whole host of things that would actually make you pro-life mm -hmm. that are that are not there and back to being allies you know tony bond said we did an event together with the chicago foundation for women this summer and she said everyone doesn't have to be, be, be a reproductive justice warrior mm -hmm. She did think that organizations should have that framework and understand it. And then Loretta Ross, I, I believe it was her who said this. She was another one of those four mothers, those 12 women. She said reproductive justice is not for black women only. And that that's wrong to even suggest because you're saying that black women are not capable of creating a framework mm -hmm. that everyone could have. And she said, because everything that I just named in those tenets are not they may, dis they may affect one race more, mm -hmm. but none of those things were racially specific. Mm -hmm. And so I think the allyship is, you know, how do you get the reproductive rights, the pro-choice organizations to, and it may be uncomfortable. You know, one of the reviews that I got um, from the reader was written by a white woman who said, she was like, wow, like, I thought Planned Parenthood was so great and that line from Margaret Sanger and she just stopped herself, like this isn't the time for me to say, but, but, but all these other things. Mm -hmm. And understanding that both things can be true. Mm -hmm. At the same time, without a doubt. You know, I think about this being an election year. Um, uh, I believe that abortion is the number one talking point for Democrats in this election. It's one we have to pay attention to. It's one that they want to reach women of every race and genre. Um, in the black community, there is a deep-seated belief that abortion is um, genocide, that abortion has to do with population control. Do you have any thoughts on how, in the days and weeks ahead, we can combat that messaging um, that we know is far from the truth? Well, I would say I don't, that statistically, black people aren't more likely to be against abortion. 
But what you are talking about is misinformation. Yes. And I think this whole country suffers from being victims of misinformation. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm not an activist, but this is a political play. It is. And I just, I, I think that artists in general are, a friend of mine once said, you know, who's more of a policy person, he was like, yeah, you can say all these things, but it's the art that changes people's hearts. So I was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> and because it gives you a space to convene, whether it's this, uh, it gives you something to read or experience, to be communal, and that that's what's important in trying to mm -hmm. get people to think about, you know, whatever that, that issue is, to think about it differently. But again, the genocide, even though you know it's it's not true, we know about forced sterilization in this country. You know we know about all the you know children taken away from mothers, and so there's a whole host of reasons for people to think these things, even if they aren't true. Mm -hmm. You know, given well, they don't want us to have. I mean, and, and it's true they don't want. You know, there's some who don't want us to have children, and that you know goes back. Or then black women's bodies used as breeding grounds. Yeah. And having to create a workforce during slavery. So it's, and that, I think that goes back to why I wanted to have an interracial conversation that anyone can be open to, but just from the characters. Like, there are no white people in the play. And that was by design. Mm -hmm. Well, only, I mean, plays, you can only have like, you know, four or five people. This isn't Broadway where you can have like a, a chorus and, you know, it's not a musical. So you have to think very carefully. It's my first play too. Like, I can't turn in with 10 people. Hey, you gotta, you gotta pay all those actors. So, so I was very deliberate coming out the gate. I was like, okay, five's a good number. Yeah. And so who would those five people be? Uh, in your in your book, that is a play about abortion, you mention in your forward um, or your introduction that you see this really as a love letter, and you've written this play as a love letter to the women who toil day in and day out, really trying to keep this landscape fertile for women who need. Uh, these services. Say a little bit more about these women that you wrote this love letter for. So there are four women in the play, the executive director of the clinic, the board chair, the social media maven, the incumbent black woman who's the city council member and then the, the candidate. I wanted to have an, uh, I wanted to be intergenerational. I didn't want it to follow along the lines of you know, old people don't have any values, only young people with ideas that everybody has something to contribute regardless of age. Mm -hmm. um, and also highlighting people who are doing work behind the scenes that may not be seen as sexy. And then with Kayla, the 19-year-old, you know, sometimes you talk about black girl magic and I love the phrase, but sometimes among black people, that phrase is used for a particular kind of black girl. Maybe one who looks like, like my daughter with natural hair, or you're college bound and you're excelling in all these things and that should be celebrated. But I also wanted to give agency to a round the way girl. Mm -hmm. Someone who's just as smart but didn't have as many opportunities and she is the, she ended up being, I didn't like the fanfare, a lot of people like, oh I love Kayla. And I wanted to honor that and to show here's someone who, you know, didn't go, who went to not a great public school, had some challenges, wants to go to college, can't go right now. Um, and she is a conduit to even her friends mm -hmm. because she decides to start an abortion storytelling series. So I, I wanted it to be a different, like not, oh, you know, she's an intern from University of Chicago, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I wanted to show some class diversity um, within these women, and even Tanya, yes, yeah, she's, you know, so like in my head, she went to Lane Tech, and then she went to Brown for undergrad, and then she went to U of C for medical school, and then she got her public health degree from Harvard. But 
you know, she grew up in Inglewood mm -hmm. and talks about starting this clinic because people like her grandmother didn't have health insurance and they mm -hmm. deserved it. So she, you know, her mother works at the Nabisco plant. So she doesn't come from, you know, a, mm -hmm. a whole lot of, you know, ec economic means. Yeah. So the, the class diversity part was, was, even though she's in a different economic class now, that was really important to me. And then Cheryl went to CVS with Bernie Mac, what she likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> you did an interview with Tony Bond, and uh, one of the things that she mentioned in that interview was that back in the day, you know, there were these healthcare conferences that literally hundreds of people from the communities would come to, and that's where they would learn things about abortion services or, or any kind of a service that's considered a healthcare service because a lot of them weren't available. My question to you is, with all of those kinds of intentional programs like those healthcare services available to the community, how are generations today, young teens and young adult women, getting that information? Because we see a rolling back of real information in sex ed classes in schools. Uh, churches are still on the cusp between, you know, um, just simply not having sex versus giving a condom. Where are new generations getting information? I, social media, TikTok, their oh, friends. Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, and I can't even say, it's, oh, the parent, you know, the parents don't have all the information that yeah. they need. So I don't really know the answer mm. or have the best solution. I, you know, there's piecemeal, like what mm -hmm. Tony Bond was doing and going into churches, but then giving condoms across the street. Um, and you know, just teaching women how to give breast exams. Like the yeah. abortion work was just, like I said, one, one piece. She started other organizations that did so much work about you know healthcare and pleasure, and also dealing with survivors. You know, there's so many women who are survivors of sexual abuse mm -hmm. and not having a place to go to talk about it. So I think it begins with, I mean, I feel like I have the Cadillac of healthcare with my insurance. Mm -hmm. And I have a doctor who, before I would change into the hospital gown, would say, okay, let's talk. Like I wasn't being rushed and yeah, right? Like that was <laughs> amazing. But my, my primary care and my um, gynecologist mm -hmm. and everybody doesn't have that. So it's, you know, how do you get robust healthcare where people can talk and get information and ask questions? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. When I think about um, your process for writing this play, I think about you as a person, as a mother, a wife, a woman, and wonder what, what did you learn? So first of all, what was the most exciting part of the process for writing this play, watching it come to stage, and tell us something you learned about from, from someone who was part of the process, and give us at least one thing you learned about yourself. Well, I will say that I underestimated what it would be like to hear your words come to life. Mm. So with the play, you're workshopping it. You know, the theater invested in me, so I wrote a third and two thirds, and you, know, you get actors to read. So the first reading, um, Oak Park's finest, I think it's okay that I say he lives here, James Vincent Meredith, who is a company member at Steppenwolf, mm -hmm. one of my favorite actors in the city. I don't know him. Mm -hmm. But when they're thinking about who to call, I said, can you see if he'll do it? <laughs> like, sit here and read, and he did multiple readings. And he couldn't be in the play because he was on Broadway. But we had another great character. Mm -hmm. But the first reading, mm -hmm. I thought I was going to weep. Like, he is what I imagined this character and then some. And he wasn't even acting. Like, he had, mm -hmm. it's a table read. And I was like, <laughs> it, it was just, it was shocking. Um, and then the, I know we're getting close to time. We're at time. But the one last thing is that a play is, I wrote the words, when you see a production, whether you saw the billboard or any production you have seen, that is not the playwright. It is the director, the dramaturg, the set, I guess all these 
these and people think that I did the casting that I, I was like no all I did was give the words and so um, I'm saying this on tape which is probably gonna get me in trouble I'm not a Beyonce fan and um, <laughs> there's a scene where Tanya is like coming on and the director does something I was like oh I didn't think the actors oh that's real oh that direction so the the Tanya is taking off her white coat and turning on her laptop. Again, things that aren't written in the play. And then she's dancing to Beyonce, mm -hmm. just for a few seconds. And a friend of mine was like, I can't believe you put Beyonce <laughs> in your play. You don't like her. And I was like, this play, I was like, it is not mine anymore. Right. Which is fine, it's like you just, and I trusted the director, Teron mm -hmm. Patton. Yeah. We were in collaboration, so just for people who are theater lovers, what you see has nothing to do with the playwright at that point. So uh, I know we're at time, but I have one more question. And I have to ask this question because it deals with our ancestors. Uh, there are two women you mentioned in the play. There are two women who are so dear to my life, my heart, everything I do. And that's Reverend Willie Taplin Barrow and Reverend Addie Wyatt. These are two women who have poured into mm -hmm. me in my younger years like it's nobody's business. What voices did you hear while you were writing this and what were they saying to you about about what you leave for others to read i just wanted to uh, like there's a monologue where tanya is saying whose shoulder she stands on and i didn't want to say the names that most people would know or expect and so that was just an easter egg to mm -hmm. Chicago, and there is universality and specificity. So I don't think that you have to, like, oh, well, who's gonna get that? Well, you can look it up if you feel like it. Um, and I think that audiences are much more open to, to learning. So for me, that was, and I did have to look up to make sure that they weren't anti-abortion. <laughs> and, you know, got the clearance from scholars, like, no, 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 it's okay, because then how embarrassing would that be? Um, but that, that's, that is what I wanted to do, is to honor names that you don't hear as much. That's beautiful. You know, so many people rely on uh, the Bible when they try to tell a person that abortion is wrong or that it's not something that women should do. Um, I think I've read every word in the Bible at least once. And what I do know that the Bible says, because it doesn't say those things, is that when it comes to your faith, and the things that you do in your life, you must work that out between you and God. Always remember that. Whatever decisions and choices you make really are between you and God and not anyone else. Natalie Y. Moore, thank you, thank you so Doris. much for giving us this gift. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today for the Barbara Ballinger Lecture of 2022 here at the Oak Park Public Library. Thank you all so much for joining us.